We'll begin this evening's talk with a brief overall explanation or exploration and some explanation of the paramis and then move towards looking more deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of the heart and the mind. The paramis are the accumulated force of purity within the heart, within the mind. The accumulated force of purity that we have are developing and continue to develop. Every mind moment that's clear, that's free of greed, of hatred, of delusion, has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. Each of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of these forces, these forces of purity within our heart and our mind. One of the root words, uh, a, a, a Pali root word of the word parami, conveys a sense of supreme quality. In Sanskrit, the word is paramita, and it means going toward, going toward something. So going toward this sense of supreme quality. Sometimes parami is uh, translated as perfection, so going toward the supreme quality of perfection. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis to be developed. And I'll just list them at this point. And I'll list it first in Pali and then in English. The first is dana, generosity. The second is sila, which is virtue or sometimes uh, defined as ethical behavior. The third is nekama, which is renunciation. The fourth is panya, which is wisdom. Next is virya, which is energy or effort. Kanti, which is patience. Saka, truthfulness. Aditana, which is resolve or determination in practice. Metta, loving kindness. And upeka, equanimity. As each of these qualities grow, as they strengthen and as they eventually mature within us, the accumulation of the qualities of greed, or non-greed I should say, (laughs) non-greed, which are generosity, renunciation and patience, the accumulation of the qualities of non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness and virtue, and of non-delusion, which are wisdom, effort or energy, resolve, and equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen in us, they become very forceful. 
they become very forceful and result in many forms of happiness, contentment, and a sense of well-being in relationship to many of the most basic worldly sensual pleasures all the way through to the very highest, most refined happiness in the awakened, the liberated mind and heart. The development, growth, and eventual maturity of these perfections, these paramis, these forces of the mind and the heart help to counter the forces that cause human beings so much suffering. Everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly, nothing occurs accidentally. The practices that lead towards the development of these qualities in our lives, in our mind, in our heart, aren't to be undervalued or thought of as not really so important. Sometimes people, I've heard people think of them or speak of them as not the real practice. This aspect of the training of the mind is really an essential, powerful, and very necessary aspect of our moving towards liberation. As these qualities grow and deepen and get more and more refined, they're incredibly powerful causes for all spiritual accomplishment. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind, the heart, of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The The first being the paramis related to the purity of conduct, we could say, the purity of action our way of being in the world, conduct in its everyday worldly aspects. And these paramis are generosity, virtue, renunciation, effort, energy in meditation practice, truthfulness, and resolve to practice. The second basic aspect of the paramis is related to the to the purity of wisdom of understanding the purity of insight both in relationship to everyday worldly life and the wisdom the insight understanding of the deepest liberating kind the wisdom of the absolute truth insight into the nature of things this second aspect of the perfections includes the paramis of panya, which is the Pali word for wisdom, patience, loving kindness, and equanimity. And of course all of the paramis are interrelated and so bring each other to light over and over and over again. The development of these forces of purity in the mind are an important aspect of the foundation for the attainment of liberation. The attainment of freedom to whatever degree 
is in part the perfectly natural result of the development of these very strong powers of the purity of the heart and mind. We could say that the development, the refinement, and the eventual attainment of the paramis is the fulfillment of the cause to gain the Dhamma, to gain the understanding of the truth, the way of things. Our practice itself, in its process, is the practice and process of purification. The path of practice that leads one towards liberation, samatha, concentration, vipassana, insight, and other specific practices such as the Brahma-vihara practices, metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and dupekka, equanimity. All of this is called, in a body of practices, the path of purification. And so the development of the paramis organically, very naturally, occurs within the context of these practices. In our everyday life here, in this intensive retreat setting, and in our everyday life outside of a retreat setting, bringing the paramis more and more to the forefront of our daily life can be quite helpful, quite fruitful. It can be a potent aspect of our practice. The paramis are, of course, to be practiced and developed for one's own liberation, but also for the benefit of one's family, one's friends, one's community, and for the benefit of the world. One aspect of the blossoming and potential perfection of these qualities of mind and heart is that they're something to work towards to practice towards benefiting others with no self-interest. The mind, the heart, liberated from all self-centered concern. So something to work towards. No greed, no hatred, no delusion. Which of course, without a doubt, is a great benefit for everyone. And oneself very much included. The word parami used in relationship to a particular person or persons refers to one who does wholesome deeds with a very pure and genuine motivation to help others and to help themselves, as in practicing the Dhamma to gain liberation. And, as, and we move towards this little by little by little through our practice. As we practice the Dhamma to gain liberation, it's really quite okay and actually necessary to have self-interest. This is a wholesome self-interest. In pursuing the Dhamma this way, as I think everyone in this room understands, there's no harm done 
in relationship to others. Traditionally, the practice, uh, development, and gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. So now, taking a look at the first of the paramis, generosity, and beginning with a story. Some years ago when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society, there were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple, which isn't very far from IMS, to pay a visit to my friend, Venerable Mahagosananda. Some of you certainly may know of him. His name translates as Maha, which means great, and Gosananda, which means sound of bliss. Maha, as he was most often fondly called, was from Cambodia and was considered, or still is considered, the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. And he's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside and villages and the refugee camps during and just after the Vietnam War. Maha died some years ago at the age of 94. He'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Mahagosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetic, energetically light human being. He felt to me like one of the most pure and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious so rare really a being with a really truly unfettered mind and a pure heart a few years before Maha's passing I had the great honor and great joy of teaching a three day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado and during that time a very sweet and deep connection came to pass between us the evening before the retreat was to begin I was taken into his quarters to say hello. And we really didn't know each other very well and we hadn't seen each other in about a year. So I didn't know if he'd remember me. Being such an old man, there were uh, things that he didn't remember. So when we met in his room, I recalled to him the last time we had met and asked him if he remembered me. And his response was, oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) And I burst out laughing. And I said, well, it must be quite a nose. (laughs) And, uh, And he very directly and very sweetly responded, it's a good nose. During a three month retreat, that I was teaching at IMS not uh, very long after this Crestone retreat with Venerable Gosananda, I visited uh, Maha at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather, who actually used to call me Mum. And at one point I asked him why he called me Mum, when in fact he was so much older than I am, that I was at that point. I'm almost as old as him now. 
And he responded saying, we have all been each other's mother at some point. And so your mom. So that day at the uh, Cambodian Peace Pagoda, mom and grandfather sat together and we drank some tea and we laughed a little bit, talked a little bit of history about his life and talked about the three-month retreat that I was uh, teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked Dhamma, Buddha Dhamma, which of course was Venerable's favorite topic. Being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart and the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered simply through his being. Or maybe more accurately, a gift he offered in simply being. And I always found it quite amazing and surprising when I was with him and afterwards. My heart would feel like it had been, it filled up my whole body, my whole being, and then on outward. An experience that would would always continue on beyond our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, to my total surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha filled the back seat of my car with big bags of Thai rice and big tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar for me to take back to all of the three-month yogis at IMS. They wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred over 25,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. And it's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that all of us are sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, an ancient, ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that displays actually a number of paramis, in particular generosity, along with virtue and renunciation, wisdom, energy, effort, and resolve. It's said that many maha kalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be um, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to a small, the small village of Amaravati in India to offer an evening of public talks revealing the Dhamma. The villagers were very, very excited and felt deeply honored. So to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out 
the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk along on through to come to and then on through their village and then cover this road with very a piece of long piece of very fine cloth. In the forest just outside this village of Amravati lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, and intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and great virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later life was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha, Gautama Buddha. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had died a few years before this story takes place, leaving him with seven generations, it said, of accumulated property and great wealth. It said that young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth, yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I too will die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I just remain idle? No. I'll leave this sheltered life, become an ascetic, and find the way. So Sumedha, he wasn't yet called Sumedha, he announced his intention to the king. And he gave all his money to the poor and entered into the forest life as a hermit, eating wild fruit and wearing clothes of bark and letting his hair grow very long and matted. And he practiced energetically, whether walking or standing, sitting or lying down. It said that within a short time he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things and he bore a bright wisdom which was never ever to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara's visit to the village of Amravati, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and the activity in the town. And it's said that seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden, golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha replied the workman, Don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village? Well, Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it to even hear the word Buddha. Where beyond all comprehending is it to meet such a fully realized one? And so he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workman with the road, and he picked a particularly swampy stretch of low ground to fill. He worked with his heart and mind, filled with joy and filled with light, repeating to himself over and over again, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air the Buddha Dipankara was approaching the village. It's said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light 
extending out from the Buddha to Pankara and a great soft golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one free of all greed, free of all anger and ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So, Sumedha spread out his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground and then he lay down on top of it and he loosened and spread his long matted hair. He made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk on over the mud. Then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all the difficulties and danger, I'll never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and to benefit all beings. The next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at that very spot and looking down at Sumedha, he knew this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He'll be successful and in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now he'll become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, men and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated this, he said, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama. And when he becomes a young man, he'll see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he'll leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of milk rice. And then with renewed strength and energy, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he'll attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha, he thought. The next moment, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta. And then the Buddha continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisattva Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity and filled with joy and a great strength of purpose. It said that he then rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained practicing hard, very hard towards his goal. I think usually we think of generosity as the practice of offering. But 
in its fullness. It's really both offering and receiving. A process which clearly helps to purify and to transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and the deepening of the heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds and the, tra- the transformation of greed, clinging, stinginess, and hoarding. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and the transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and the energies of resistance. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give help, and we receive the seamless circle. We cultivate and we manifest this quality in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, no matter our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning, many, many years ago now. My four-and-a-half-year-old son, who is now 48, wanders over to my work area. And with a very big and very bright smile on his beautiful little face, he thrusts a bunch of yellow dandelions at me that he'd picked. And I receive them with delight and with heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China on my 46th birthday. The friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with a Chinese family that were good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. And I'd learned that in China, the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So in the midst of um, experiencing some degree of attachment, I decided to give my bracelet to this young woman for my birthday, though actually feeling uh, uh, kind of like a one-handed giver uh, during my consideration of doing this and then finally deciding to do it. Though when it came time to actually give give her the gift, it really was with both hands and with an open heart. And it was at that point truly a joy. Though the process of getting there was very much a practice of generosity for me. A very dear friend of mine waited some years for all of the conditions to come together in her life to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And finally, one year they do. All the conditions come together. But one week before the retreat begins, she calls to tell me that she's given up her spot. 
because a very dear friend of hers who was dying of cancer asked her if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have a very inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes this small bronze statue of his beloved teacher off the dashboard of his car and hands it to me, gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just simply opens and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by blood relatives and extended family. And there are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child in the circle. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. Another voice, I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. And then the child is led out of the circle to share the food and the drink with the hungry and the thirsty and the blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. A number of summers ago now, forest fires raged in Los Alamos and the Española area here in New Mexico. And hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. Almost immediately, there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, as well as offerings of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were all told that it was time to stop giving. The needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met and met with great abundance. And I know that all of you here are very aware of the various hurricanes and earthquakes and the tsunamis that have occurred around the world in these last few years. And the incredible outpouring of generosity offered by so many and in so many ways really people to people person to person at some point along the way of your life along the way of your practice you decided that you wanted to sit this retreat and all of the condition, conditions come together and so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself and you receive the fruits of your practice and you receive the teachings day by day as your retreat unfolds.
just for a moment imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food a line of saffron robed monks is moving slowly gracefully down the road each of them holding a round begging bowl and as they pass in front of you you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks bowls imagine yourself as a child standing with your mother or your father or an older sister or an older brother and seeing this ritual seeing this offering each morning of your life taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice taking in the joy and the genuine happiness quite apparent in this purity of giving the benefits of generosity are easily learned each day they simply become a natural part of your life the buddha taught if beings knew as i know the results of sharing gifts they would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there even if it was their last and final bit of food they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there was anyone to receive it Buddha and his monks and nuns all lived in the same simple way making alms rounds each day for their sustenance the buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life and in speaking to his sangha he said thus you must train yourself we will be thankful and grateful not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten giving and receiving generosity the practice of the heart most of us here in this western world don't have this kind of daily experience this reminder the monastic training of the begging bowl isn't very easily available in this country which at least in part is the training the cultivation of renunciation gratitude and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what's offered in support of a way of life here in retreat we certainly do get a taste of that and in our regular life we don't regularly engage from the other side the side of offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance and through that process reaping the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light joyous 
and generous heart. As it is for the most part, our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, to thirst for, to acquire and accumulate and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material accumulations and the accumulations of ideas, opinions and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations to think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In light of this pervasive and very sticky conditioning, I think that it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing, knowing, the truth of ourselves, the truth of things underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment and clinging and identification. In a poem that speaks of this in a very special way, a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye, written uh, in 1978 in, when she was in Colombia, and she calls it kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must make, wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that 
teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential emptiness of all accumulations. And I think that as a culture, there's a deep, quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy. It's a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours today may be gone tomorrow or maybe seemingly belong to someone else next week and maybe even in this retreat. My walking path, my chair in the meditation hall, my seat in the dining room. What in this world really, really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that has any really hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be a very powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth, the inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and the confusion that's generated through the conditioning, generated through the training of accumulating, and then fixing on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held onto in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted. It's a gift that can forever be given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so, from this perspective, as the Buddha says, the greatest gift is the act of giving itself. There's a short little sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya that I'd like to share with you and the, a little preamble to it. <clears throat> On one occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anathapindika's monastery. And then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, went to the Blessed One. 
On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him. And after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, they sat to one side. And as they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gautama, Master Gautama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. And we have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gotama. Instruct us, Master Gotama, for our long-term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha responds to them, Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. And you have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay your fears. This world is on fire with aging, illness, and death, said Master Gautama. And then he goes on with this teaching. When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving. What's given is well salvaged. Traditionally in the Buddhist teachings, three kinds of giving are spoken of. There's what we could call beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say, still holding on to what we have or what we give. It's mine, kind of how I first began giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. And in this kind of giving, we might give the least of what we have. And after, we might even wonder whether we should have given anything at all. The second kind of giving could be called friendly giving. And we give open-handedly with both hands. We share what we have because it feels natural and it feels appropriate to do so. It's a clear giving. And then there's what is called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves to be only temporary caregivers of whatever has been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. In this, we could say there's no giving. There's just this spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. Shantideva, a century Buddhist monk, said this. He said, others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. There's nothing to be held on to in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms.
Desmond Tutu from South Africa said this. He said, Africans believe in something that's quite difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on the behalf of others, and being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It, it recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And as you well know, we don't always live with this purity and completeness of kingly and queenly generosity. I think, at least in part, this is one of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with ourselves, to honor and respect your capacity of heart at any given point along the way, and not to pretend anything to yourself or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image of what you might think a generous, compassionate, loving person is. It's important to recognize, honor, and respect your particular limits along the way and really come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity when in fact we might be acting out of fear of loss or a fear of disapproval or fear of some degree of harsh physical or verbal reaction. Or we might be coming from a place of trying to avoid dealing directly with someone or dealing directly with a particular situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear, it perpetuates delusion, and it strengthens the closed heart of self-centeredness. And it strengthens the disconnection, which causes, in fact, then continued suffering in ourself and maybe also in another as well. It may be that you have a strong sense, inner sense of need, maybe not really feeling whole, not feeling simply feeling an intuitive okayness about being here, a simple okayness about being alive in this life, just simply because here we are. Here we are, alive in this life. And without this, we may experience some degree of a pervasive, undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness, a feeling of an inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness, the strength of abundance, it needs to be respected. Otherwise, giving and sharing and caring may be done with a subtle or often not so subtle, unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, from the conditioned feeling of lack, there may be some misunderstanding 
in relationship to the truth of generosity. It's important to understand, respect, and honor in ourselves and in others that the wisdom of a deep and true generosity develops and matures gradually. And in relationship to this, um, on the scale of our work in the world, Thomas, Thomas Merton said this, he said, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and to endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better by a healthy child a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition. To know one life has breathed, even just one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. And now taking just a couple of moments to look at generosity from another perspective. There is a practice that um, a Tibetan teacher told me about. <clears throat> a very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly, and miserly. People who in sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. This sort of person often has trouble giving even to themselves and may not be able to ask for help or to receive it graciously even if it's offered. Receiving help, gifts, praise, even love can be difficult for people like this. They might not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, with joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they're physically ill or distressed emotionally. So, the practice this Tibetan teacher told me about is to take something very, very ordinary, something that one might not think of as particularly valuable, maybe like a potato or a, a turnip, and you hold it in one hand, and then you pass it to the other hand, and then back, and forth, hand to hand, back and forth to your own hands, giving it to yourself, this potato or turnip, until it gets easy to do it. And then there are the higher practices. 
if one's motivated, if one's inclined to continue the practice of generosity, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving symbolically develops into letting go of, into relinquishing, into offering everything. All of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits and preferences, ideas, beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings, as they're called. The practice is done in its final stage, with ideally done with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. And at one point, I did this practice. But instead of precious jewels, I had a mound of rice that was being offered over and over to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere, which actually felt quite appropriate that it was a mound of rice. And this is really what we're doing here in our practice, without the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that it's just right just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart, with a clear, focused, mindful awareness, receiving the present moment just as it is, with gratitude, appreciation, humility, and equanimity with unconditional acceptance. We're learning to apply the wise and careful attention of a concentrated, focused, mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body to any task that we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath from its birth all the way to its death. We're learning to receive life fully. Be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is the path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. We're learning that this very life is our path to liberation and that our liberation is intimately connected to the development of a deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi responded by saying, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity is twofold. We give to help and to free others. 
and we give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. I'd like to close this evening's talk with one more story. About 28 years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And in those years he would come once or twice a year to the area in Michigan where I lived. He'd come there to teach us. And one particular year I invited him to come and stay at my house which was a small, very old, five-room log house. It was out in the Michigan woods. At that point, only two of us lived there, one of my sons and I. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came, and an old, uh, very well-used small car pulled up in the driveway, and Wallace was the first one to get out. And he's quite a big man. He was about, he's about six feet, three or four inches tall, very big boned. And he looked even bigger uh, with his big cowboy boots, tall cowboy boots, and his tall cowboy hat. And then it was kind of like one of those um, cars in the circus that when it pulls up into the center ring and the doors open and people start getting out, pouring out, and you're amazed, couldn't, can't believe how many people can fit into such a small car. So as my son and I watched, seven people emerged out of this old, small old car, all of Wallace's helpers and some of his family members. And as it turned out, there were 11 people living in our house during this 10-day period. And I thought, how will we all live and how will we all sleep in this tiny house? Well, the space just seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere, and food would arrive. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet with and listen to Wallace as he talked and shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge, which was down the road at the ecology center, usually until about 12.30 in the morning. And at that point, it was time for a big dinner because there were no meals taken throughout the whole afternoon and evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies and nobody was on eight precepts. During those 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences, many of my habits, how I use the various spaces in my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, my food preferences, and many other preferences. Wallace and one of the other members of his family were chain smokers, cigarette smokers, in my no-smoking home. And as I said, people slept all over the house. The day would begin quite uh, late in the day, late in the morning, because of the late-night sweat lodges and the big dinner uh, at 1 o'clock in the morning. 
each afternoon the house was filled with people. Sometimes 15 or 20 people would be there. They'd come by to listen, uh, listen and uh, share, hear, hear Wallace share uh, his teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats and there were bowls of food at the door and some bowls of food left on the kitchen counter. Often a friend and I would be cooking up something for part of the main meal, main course for the meal at 12 or 1 in the morning. There was always enough space and there was plenty of food. The last night of this 10 days, Wallace and his friends said they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. And so we all sat together in a circle. Each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And then they gave my son and I some beautiful treasures that they'd brought with them in gratitude for our sharing of our space, our time, and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke, and he said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance, he said. If one shares space and time and energy, he said, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. And then he said, if one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance. When everyone left the next day, the next morning, in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside watching them all kind of pile back into this old car, kind of like a movie playing backwards, it felt like. And then the two of us walked into the house, and we stood there in amazement. The great expanse of the house, holding all of the people, holding all of the activity, all of the energy for those ten days, when we walked back inside the house after everyone had left, it seemed that our house had shrunk. And yet, somehow, we both felt expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. And closing the talk, a poem from one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver. And she calls this one Goldenrod. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold, in little towers, soft as mash, sneeze bringers and seed bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it except for honey and how it heartens the heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. 
For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw hillsides, citrone and butter-colored, and was happy. And why not? Are there not difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far that is better than these light-filled bodies? All day on their airy backbones they toss in the wind. They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness, in the pure peace of giving one's gold away. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. We'll close the evening with chanting the sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, May those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind 
with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.